This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hi, I'm Josh Christensen, executive producer of podcasts at Fast Company. The Most Innovative Companies podcast with James Vincent will be back with new episodes soon, but in the meantime, we're going to bring you some very special highlights from Fast Company's Innovation Festival from this past September in New York City. Starting with a panel with Jamie Lee Curtis and producer Jason Blum, moderated by Fast Company's Jill Bernstein, about the enduring power of the Halloween franchise and their unconventional approaches to success in the entertainment industry. Enjoy! The two people on stage with me today are experts at something that we at Fast Company talk about all the time as being key to success in any industry, and that's connecting with an audience. Jason Blum is the producer and founder and CEO of Blumhouse, which has brought us such franchises as Paranormal Activity, Happy Death Day, The Purge, and also films films like Whiplash, Black Klansmen, and HBO's The Jinx and The Normal Heart. Blumhouse recently crossed the five billion mark at the box office, that's billion with a B, one of the best runs for a production company in Hollywood history. Jamie Lee Curtis is an actor, producer, podcaster, children's book author, and patent-holding investor. Look it up. Uh, In addition to her memorable roles in such films as Trading Places, True Lies, A Fish Called Wanda, Freaky Friday, she is responsible for one of the longest actor-character pairings in film history, and that's Laurie Strode in Halloween. Jason and Jamie are two of the key players behind the recent reboot of the Halloween franchise. The first of the three films broke the record for the biggest opening for a slasher movie and for any movie ever starring a woman over 55. The final installment, Halloween Ends, opens in theaters and streams on Peacock on October 14th. It's really great to have you here. Um, We are going to start by talking about this movie that we're all riled up. Um, Jamie, when you agreed to come back to this franchise for the, you know, the first film of the trio, um, it was important to you that the movie was grounded in some emotional reality of what it would be like for a person to have dealt with things like this and um, trauma. PTSD, that it was not just somebody just coming back for another round as if nothing had ever happened before. Um, why was it important to you and, you know, for both of you, how did that um, emotional connection to the past and past history affect how the movie was made? Well, it's, it, first of all, I didn't know it was a trilogy, A. B, um, the H2O movie that we made, which was the 20th anniversary movie, was similar in its concept, which is that being brutalized has an effect on you. And I thought at the time that it was an interesting idea that 20 years had never had a movie where the same people made the movie and, and we could explore what trauma did. And I'm sure many of you have seen the meme of me saying the word trauma a thousand times. If you haven't, look it up. It is hilarious. Um, But I never thought I would make another Halloween movie after the H2O movie. I mean, the last thing I thought I would do is a Halloween movie. And when David Gordon Green sent me the script that uh, Jason had asked him to write, 
And I understood that it was going to be about what happens to someone in reality. You know, these are horror movies, but, but they're real. And I was very impressed with how they were going to deal with what is the reality of Laurie Strode's life, what has it done to her family, the generational trauma, as well as the protectionism that she found herself in. And I just thought that was important. I think it's important, just by the way, that little clip you saw. When we shot that scene, that's a big scene in the movie, I said, I do not want it to look like a movie fight. I want it to look like a street brawl. Like, I do not want any of it to look choreographed and I want it to look brutal because that is what violence is. Violence is brutal. It's absolutely gut-wrenchingly brutal and you have to show that on the screen. So even, and I'm gonna take credit because here I am at Fast Company. <laughs> even the hand in the garbage disposal is mine. <laughs> because we were at the sink and we were doing a rehearsal and trying to figure it out. And I was like, what if he flips the switch and then he makes her put her hand down there? Because how, raise your hand in this room if you've ever thought about like what would happen. <laughs> Thank you, my point exactly. So I, I, again, it's based in reality. It's not some superhero fight where it had to be real. And I think that is the key here, is, is base it all in reality. You had a little extra leverage because you're a producer on this movie, right? I mean, a little bit, more than a, some other, no? The truth of the matter is I am a produ an a yeah. executive producer when you're me, is your job is head cheerleader, period. <laughs> it's your job to basically rally your group of creative people. That's my job. I have one contribution to the movie. It is the end of the movie. I will take a little credit when the movie comes out and we can talk about it. But other than that, my real job is to be Jason's emissary on set and to actually try to group us. Like I've already tried to group us. We're all strangers. Well, you guys all may know each other, but we don't know each other. And my goal would be at the end of this that somehow we will have had something together, because that's, to me, what my job is. I would actually kind of disagree with that. I think Jamie did really a lot, maybe things you weren't aware of, but a lot of producerial tasks through the three movies, and I saw her do that incredibly well and, and successfully. We have a production deal with Jamie where she's um, producing multiple projects with us, some of which she's in, some of which she's not in, I mean, I think you're a, you're a terrific, you understand all aspects of our business from all different sides, and that was, that's what makes a great producer, and I think you're, you've been, to me, a great producing partner. Yes, we've had a good collaborative experience. We're going to make movies and TV shows together. I am very involved in marketing. Um, they call me a weapon of mass promotion. <laughs> um, I don't know if any of you saw everything everywhere all at once. But but there was, uh, I, I posted often uh, about the movie because I was so happy and proud of this tiny, tiny little movie that became something. And somebody tweeted, 
I want someone to love me as much as Jamie Lee Curtis loves everything, everywhere, all at once. So I am that girl. I mean, I will, I, again, it's a, that, but I also love marketing. Uh, Michael Moses, I'm sorry, is not here. Michael Moses is the universal head of marketing, and he is without peer as far as I'm concerned. So That's also, that's very unusual for, for actors. I think the notion of like, I do my work as an actor, and then I retreat and let the world, let the, that's not our business. I mean, you could do that, I suppose you could do that more easily, although it really applies to whether you write a book or you're in a play or paint a painting. But Jamie understands, and I agree, you owe the audience more than that. And especially in the movies where there's a lot of capital involved, you know, you owe the audience more. And, you know, most actors, don't say that and aren't, aren't that good at it. And that, uh, that's another thing that's unique about, uh, I know, but about can, my partner over here. Can I say something? I also call BS on all these actors who claim they don't do press until... They do press. They do press. Yeah. It's shocking And talk me. about how they don't do press. All the time. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. This is a business. Yeah. And it's a really changing business as evidence of what we're doing here today. This is, this is the feeding of the business machine is much bigger. Even though I'm going on an old-fashioned promotion tour around the world, the world has changed and technology and the portals that we deliver that technology through are vast and ever-changing. And so I think you have to understand that. And I find, I call BS and all that. I agree. All I those people too. that claim they don't because they <laughs> Let's they uh, continue on this, this topic of um, the business part of movies. And horror as a genre is just so big. It's a huge part of the movie world in ways that it hasn't always been. But right now it's very popular. And I've always, I always used to hear that it exports well. Like horror is something that goes, um, you can translate like South American territories and Asian territories. Supernatural and, better than uh, slash, But, better, but, but yes. better than comedy, which doesn't export. That was always the line. And um, is that still the case? Like, do you find that horror does well all over? You can take a movie and it'll do as well in one country as another? Yeah, horror, horror generally does well overseas. It does, supernatural horror does, does significantly better than American down-home uh, slasher movies. The reason that I think, and this audience might think, um, the reason I love horror is because I like making things that people see. I spent the beginning of my career in independent movies. I loved making independent movies. I hated the way independent movies were released because no one sees any independent movies. And everyone sees horror movies. And what we've always looked at we, we, we look at horror movies, Halloween is no exception, as taking what would be an independent Sundance drama and dropping it in the sleeve of horror, of making it scary. But if you take our movies, I always tell our directors and our writers, and you always know someone who doesn't like horror when they say, what are the scares in the movie? They don't like horror. They don't understand horror because the scares in a horror movie, they're 20, the same scares with the same 20 scares for 100 years. What makes the scare scary is what comes before the, is the drama and the story and the acting. And I always tell our writers, take out the scares and do you have a great indie drama that stands alone? And what I love about horror is that it's a, it's a great way to smuggle 
subversive, <laughs> crazy, unusual stories to a wide, broad audience. Horror movies have been around since like World War One, since the dawn of cinema, black and white movies, Nosferatu. Like this is, it's not new, but horror movies have also gone through eras, like the 70s with a lot of occult and, um, you know, satanic possession and things like that. And uh, slasher films in the 80s got got going. The 90s, uh, Scream, it got a little tongue-in-cheek, a little cutesy, a little meta. Where do you think we are now with horror movies, 2022? Is there, oh, don't is there like <laughs> <laughs> I think Get Out um, made horror movies, like, more acceptable to, like, snobs and that's kind of, for me that's kind of, <laughs> kind of a bummer because i like being like you know i like horror the other very appealing thing for me is horror and you know, it's outsiders and people look down on it and that's why those of us who love horror that's one of the reasons we, we love to do it because we love to be kind of ostracized now after get out and after the challenges that the theatrical marketplace has seen it's much harder to get a movie to work in theaters now there are very few genres left working so I think if we're looking at, we'll see, time will tell, but I think if we'll look at the last decade, what's new about horror is it's always been there. It started with John Carpenter. It started before John Carpenter. But I think there's more emphasis now on using horror to make a social message, which I think is great. What I think is doesn't work is if you, and we, well, you confused me on this one time I was talking about this. What doesn't work is if you take a social message first and build a horror movie around it, no one's going to see it. But if you, if you feel strongly about something, the, in other words, the horror has to work before the social message. Otherwise, people like feel like they're going to school. But I would say that's what would, be, what would be looked at as this kind of decade of horror. And I actually think if you go back and look at this in 10 years, at this trilogy, yeah. and you look at the social uh, impact globally of the Me Too movement, the uprising, the bullying that we're seeing in this particular time in the zeitgeist of this world right now, these three movies, David Gordon Green, take him to fucking Vegas <laughs> because he is prescient. Yeah. He understood that women were enraged and enslaved by their rage way before when he wrote the 2018 Halloween movie about a woman who was saying no more, this is my story, I believe in it. And then, obviously, Me Too happened concurrently with the release of that movie. We made that movie a year before. And then the same thing happened with Kills, with the uprisings, and the first uprising, which was the George Floyd uprising. And I thought, okay, these people are geniuses because we had made a movie about mob violence. In fact, the tagline on the back of the chairs on the movie were mob rules. They made a movie about a mob and then the George Floyd protests happened. We started seeing mobs all over the country. But then COVID happened and we didn't release the movie. And I thought, oh, well, that not is a shame, but you know what I mean? Like the, the connection to that and then January 6th. And so what happened is we made a movie about a mob before the mob. And now we've made a movie about bullying, this intensity of feeling that we have as human beings for other people who are other and we put into them. And I think you're gonna look back on these movies and realize what David Gordon Green and Danny McBride and their team of writers were able to intuit from the universe, the messages that we were receiving. I think you're gonna see that 
um, and be like, Damn. <laughs> yeah. And to my point before, David Gordon Green is a really, he's an indie filmmaker. You yeah. Know? And those are the, the filmmakers that we embrace are great indie filmmakers. We always say, we'll help you with the scary part. The hard part is the drama or what mm -hmm. Jamie's talking about. This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. You're about to work together um, on, you know, a lot of things going right now, but specifically um, an adaptation of a book about people who survived that horrible campfire in 2018. Um, it's horror of a different sort. Um, how did this come about and uh, why is this project interesting to you? So I, born and raised City of Angels, I'm born and raised California girl. I'm aware of the profound nature of climate change and the effect. And I was listening to the radio. Obviously, I was aware of the campfire when it was happening, and everybody does what they can to support firefighters, blah, blah, blah. And Lizzie Johnson uh, wrote a book. She embedded with the people of Paradise, and she wrote a book. And I heard her on NPR on Scott Simon talking about the story of the campfire, the book Paradise, and one story in particular of a bus driver named Kevin McKay, who along with a teacher named Mary Ludwig saved the lives of 23 children when they were all trapped in this bus. It was called the Lost Bus. And the parents didn't know where their kids were, what was happening. And this is a fire that destroyed an entire town. And I heard that story on the radio and I did what all y'all do. I Twitter stalked Lizzie Johnson. <laughs> and literally threw out to Twitter, hey, anybody know Lizzie Johnson? I'm looking for her. And I found her and uh, went to Jason and said, Jason, you can't make a movie about this fire because it will cost you $500 million to make it because you have to have burn an entire town down. But you can tell the story of the enormity of this fire through the lens of that bus and those heroes. I'm telling you right now, I'm new at this as a producer. And when I called Jason Blum and said, Jason, I found this woman, this book is available, I wanna buy it, but I need to buy it today because this is gonna go. Jason Blum responded immediately and we can't talk about it too much more than that, except it's incredibly powerful. And we have, and, a, and we have a, now we have a great script. We have a great script with a, a great, great writer that I can't name publicly yet, and we're going to make a great movie about it and talk about really what happened with PG&E and the enormity of that. At the same time, talking about everyday heroes and their story, and it's fabulous. It's exciting. Very excited. Exciting. Uh, something you two have in common, it seems. We're loud. Hmm. In addition to that. Obnoxious and annoying. You're very efficient. You're very efficient people. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, Jason, you and Blumhouse are, are famous for creating micro-budget films for specific audiences that often return like these massive revenues proportionally. And like you know, the Halloween reboot came out in 2018, earned, if I'm right on this, $256 million on a $10 million budget. This makes people want to work with you. And uh, I think I counted that you have had, or you will have had about like 22 products come out just in 2022 alone. Um, that's a lot, and that's like an incredible 
pace of work. And Jamie, you're, while you're making films, you're producing, you're doing a podcast, two, um, two podcasts. You have an e-commerce site where the products go to charity, um, develop your own uh, projects through Comet Pictures. Um, you told my colleague Yaz recently in an interview that when you're on set, you don't love a lot of chit chat. You just want to get things done. You keep things moving, getting it going. Um, so the question I guess I have for both of you is, how do you then balance your creative sides with this um, getting things done side? Um, do you think about them in tandem? Do they kind of, you know, now I'm going to be efficient and then I'll let my creativity happen another time? Do you, how do you think about balancing those things? Because you both work in very creative fields, but you're not, you know, off in creative land. You're you go. I could never um, divide it. My create. I apply my creativity to my efficiency. I mean, I apply my creative. The creative part of my brain works all the time on my business, not just on reading scripts or looking at actors or talking to directors. For me, those things. Those things are are one and the same. I have to think about them the same way. If I thought them. If I compartmentalized business and efficiency and then creative, I would, I would not be happy. And if I wasn't happy, I wouldn't be good at what I do. So, so for me, it's just one thing. I've been this girl since I was a teenager. And I, I always wanted to be just idea girl. And I wanted somebody to just give me an office somewhere and just come in and let me come up with ideas. I'm, I come up with ideas all day long, every day. I, I sleep, but I am an idea girl. I am firing ideas at all times. And I had tried to develop things for a long time early on, and I've raised two kids and stayed married and had family and elder parents and all the things that everybody has. And I just never, and I wrote books for children and produced those, and, and I did all of that, but I never really got this part of it going. I would get close and then we'd, scripts would be written, thing, thing, thing. I didn't have a company, thing, thing. And I turned 60 and I honestly thought, so I'm going to die soon. And I don't mean that. I'm not being crazy here. I'm 60 years old. I'm actually 60 fucking four years old this year. And my point is, thank you. But my point is simply this sooner than later. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's just do the math. Get the tape measure out and look at six, you know what I mean? And you look how old your parents are, going fast. And I woke up at 60 and thought, if not now, when? If not me, who? And the reason I came up with that idea was I realized that I was going to die. And all of this creativity that I have in my head going all day long was going to die with me. And I thought, that's the tragedy of death, is the creativity and love and beauty and art that comes from people like us, people who are, who are thinkers and doers. It dies with you. So get it out before you're dead. And all of a sudden, I was like, fuck, I'm going to be dead soon. And, and that has just propelled me. Uh, it happened to dovetail into ridiculous success with Halloween, which gave me now a partner. So we didn't know each other. We'd never met when we made the original Halloween, which I got paid scale back to Jason's point. Wow. When we made that original Halloween movie, 
I was paid Screen Actors Guild scale, whatever that was, for my role as Laurie Strode in that movie. Now, did I have a piece of the back end of the movie? Fuck yes. Um, <laughs> but I made it for scale because we didn't know. But what happened is that movie was so successful, it gave us a relationship now that we were going to now build with two other movies, and then from that, all of these projects, because I got no time to waste. You have no time to waste. If you want to do something, fucking do it now. Start it now. That's literally my drive. All right. I have to clarify one thing. Because uh, we're talking about we're talking about profit and money a lot, which is very important and terrific. However, the the one thing that uh, that it's important for for people who kind of aren't aware of the intricate the in and out of my business model, we make low budget movies. We hope they make a lot of money, and the, some of the people involved with them make a lot of money, and that's great. But that's not the reason that we make low budget movies is it because it allows us to do what I was talking about earlier. It allows us to make movies that wouldn't be responsible to make. When you're making a movie for 80 or 100 or $150 million, they can only star these four people. They have, you have to feel good at the end. You can't kill this one or that one. The motivation of the lead character has to be angelic. All these things <laughs> which I find very boring. Yeah. But when you make a movie for 10 or $15 million, all that pressure is taken off. You can cast different up-and-comers. You can play. You can have a lead of the movie die, which we did at The Hunt at, in, uh, in, in, in 20 minutes into the movie. So that the reason that I now could make expensive movies and I could make money making expensive movies, I choose not to because it, we can't tell those subversive stories expensively. Mm -hmm. That's all. There's a, a question about, this is a very different topic, but um, there's, a, there's a phrase that's used in... Hollywood all the time that I love. And it's not used anywhere else, and, or very rarely, and that's creative differences. <laughs> and it's a wonderful, wonderful term because it can be a, just a tidy euphemism for like brawling discontent on a set, um, people really hating each other, you know, they had creative differences. But it, you know, sometimes it's actually creep. Somebody wants one thing, somebody wants another. These are, you know, group projects are hard. We learned that in kids in school. And, and um, I guess, you know, it happens in every industry where people have creative differences. And how do you know, as producers and, you know, and actors too, like people who've been doing this a long time, how do you know when the creative differences are, are things you can work through and when you need to part ways? And then that's when you hear about the right, creative differences. I have a ton to say. I was going to say, please. Okay, I have a ton to say. I have a lot to say. <laughs> I, you know, I can't speak to other art forms, but in movie and TV making, creative differences are what makes the difference between good and great are creative differences. But I have a very specific point of view about it, which is the following. Another reason that I don't make expensive movies is you can't, it's very difficult to give the filmmaker final cut when you're making a movie for $100 million. There are like four filmmakers that get final cut when the movies are massively expensive. I give all our directors final cut. I don't pay them up front, they get scale, but they get to live and die by their own work. When you've given the director creative control, he or she is not going to bed every night in a panic, 
worried that they're going to be forced to do something they don't want to do. So unlike the streamers, they, they, they have this, they give creative control, but then they kind of let go. We do the opposite. We give creative control, but we are talking to the directors all day about everything. Here's our thoughts about the script. Here's where you should shoot it. Here's how much we think, we well, should cast this, you should cast this, you should cast this. And the conversation that we have with the directors is so much healthier because the director knows that at the end of the day, they're gonna get what they want, but they're not just gonna get what they want immediately. But if the director really is confident, and we've worked with enough directors, so when they I say final cut, they know I mean it, they're, they, want, they want our opinion. Suddenly we're like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Do you like this end? Do you like that? How do you like this marketing? How do you like that? And so we have, what do you call it? Creative differences. Creative differences all day long, but I think they're healthy and they make for, for better movies and shows. But uh, a lot of people do it differently than we do. Hmm. Oh, I have nothing to add. <laughs> I'm an actor, you know, you're, it's not, I don't. Untrue. untrue. You know, no, I'm being oh, honest. I'm, I'm, I'm also, I think you can kind of tell, if someone's a dickhead, I'm going to have a lot of problems with it. Because I'm just not, I'm just too relaxed about it. It's, it's just, it's such a privileged job that we get to do. The idea that someone is going to have that level of attitude. I've been fortunate that there have been very, very few, and the few that were just real, you know, certainly nasty people, I, I don't ever have to work with them again. And I wasn't, you know, sort of in their line of fire, so to speak. I, I want to say one thing about Jason's company. When I first went to his offices, the first time I ever went to his offices, I sat in the waiting room. It's this cool kind of... They're in the ghetto. They're in the hood. They're in the hood. I wonder why, Jason. Because I'm cheap. Thank you. Um, and I went to this, and it's kind of cool. It looks like a kind of Mad Men, 60s, modern kind of building. But it's in the hood. And I remember sitting in the waiting room. And what I love is instead of movie posters all over the walls, there are pictures of directors. So you just look on the wall, and it's a picture of this director, and there's Jordan Peele, and then there's this person, and this person, this person. And then there is a mirror... <laughs> and it says, imagine your face there. <laughs> that tells me and told me in that moment, that's who Jason Blum was, because his name is on the fucking door. It's his, the company is called Blum House. It's his house. And what it told me was that he cared about filmmakers, and he wanted directors to want to work with him because he respected them. There are no actors on the wall. I'm not on the wall. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not that. It's about filmmaking and the directors that he wants to work with. And I just thought that spoke to me about as much about you as a creative force in the business as anything you've ever done. It's funny, if you talk to directors about their experience making movies, making movies, all different size movies, you'll hear a director say, that the larger the budget of the movie, the less, to talk about your creativity question, the less time they spend on making that movie, which is incredible. So in other words, at a $200 million budget, they spend 75% of their time on politics, mm -hmm. managing the Queen Mary, and 25% of their time you know, building the Queen Mary, 
And on a $5 million movie, when they have Final Cut, which is my, you know, they spend uh, hopefully 100% of their time making their movie and no percent of the time on politics. I don't know. That's an interesting mm. thing. I began this conversation. I kicked it off uh, by mentioning how good you are at connecting with audiences, both of you in, in your own ways. You do this through your films and also as people. Jason, many of your films, um, like Get Out and Black Klansmen, um, have strong points of view. And, uh, but you also say what you think in real life, as we all realize now. Um, but even you also, you know, you said not long ago that you were ready to move on from paranormal activity after seven films. You admitted that the last one was terrible. I mean, most producers don't oh, say God, that. Oh, God, I got in so much trouble for yeah, that. Yeah, well. <laughs> it's out there forever. And, oh, God. Um, Jamie, you're kind of the OG here. And um, I will never forget 20 years ago, when um, no one was doing this, you drew attention to the use of photo retouching in mm. photographs by agreeing to appear in More Magazine, RIP, More Magazine. All right. Um, in the uh, building. Was it? Meredith. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, but she would only do it with no makeup, no retouching, and she did it in her underpants. And it was the most beautiful yeah. photo spread <laughs> ever. You, I also saw that you said you called it possibly the best contribution you'd ever make as a public figure or ever had made <laughs> as a public it, it figure. It will be. It, it could very well be. It, I, I want to address one thing you said. Oh. When I say I required it, yeah. it wasn't them coming to me. Right. I went because they wanted just a, you know, pretty... Pretty picture of Jamie, like in a cashmere sweater, <laughs> and kind of pretty, because it was a magazine originally for women over 50. Say, y'all forget, More Magazine was actually a magazine for women over 50. And then all of a sudden, when you know the magazine business started to implode, it became a magazine for every woman, um, as if we're all the same. And it changed, but it was a requirement on my part. I was selling, just to put it into uh, context, I was selling, I write books for children, and I had written a book called I'm Gonna Like Me, Letting Off a Little Self-Esteem. So clever. <laughs> and it's a book about self-esteem. It's a book about what, what, how do you get self-esteem? You can't buy it. You know, uh, uh, self-esteem comes from esteemable acts. That's how you build it. And so it was a book for children about that. And as I was going to go and do the rounds and talk about this book for children, I thought, well, how do I do it for a magazine? And I realized I needed to talk about my own insecurities as a woman. And so I decided uh, to take off my clothes. They wouldn't put it on the cover. I'm on the cover like, you know, pretty girl. <laughs> but there is a picture of me inside in a pair of bicycle, like a pair of jockey shorts and a sports bra and the requirement was no makeup no hair nothing bad lighting take the picture and then fully glam me up and take a picture and put it next to it i insisted that this is what they do and you have to write how long it took and how much money it cost to get to that picture and it i knew it would be good I did not know that it was going to do what I can only imagine if I saw a woman doing that. Because we all struggle with it. You dudes just don't. We do. And I, it turned out to be a really powerful moment for me. It really was. I mean, the, it was the first time that anybody had done that. I'm getting chills just remembering what that 
was like to read it as a reader. Because it's fake. The yeah. problem is, in the media world, it's all fake. And we all do it. Who here has not put a filter on a picture? I mean, they lighten you up a little, or you take out the booger in your nose, or whatever it is. <laughs> we all do it. It's be, we are inured to it. It's become part of our daily lives that we're faking life. And it's only going to get worse. I won't name her, but there's a public figure, a woman. She's my age, I think, and she, it's insane. <laughs> what are we doing? And so that was, it was, that's today. This was then. Anyway, so I'll shut up. <laughs> Do you think about, you know, as the public figures that you are, like the risks involved? I mean, clearly you're, you have some regret over saying that about paranormal activity. I mean, maybe it got you into hot water. Then again, it probably builds credibility with audiences to know that you know you're not kidding yourself about your own movies and that your sense of quality is on par with theirs. Um, you know, do you think about this stuff in advance? Do you, do you, um, are you worried about saying what's on your minds when you talk to press? Like, I try not to worry about it because, like, it's just otherwise, it's again, it's I, it, my, as soon as my job or is not fun, I'm not going to do it anymore. And my job, if I had to, if I have to lie or, or just pretend, there's some questions I'll say, I'm not going to answer that, you know, but, but, but I don't, I don't, otherwise, it's not, it's not fun what we're, what our jobs are. And the other thing, well, I'm not gonna get into that. That's a good example of me saying, <laughs> no, the paranormal thing was, it was one of the paranormal movies, it wasn't the seventh one. Oh. But the annoying thing, and this is, a, this is not political either, but the annoying thing, what I was real, I have a bad taste in my mouth about the, probably all of paranormal, was the extraordinarily contentious and looking back on it, unfair relationship I had with Paramount. Oh. And I felt bad because I took it kind of, the filmmaker was shrapnel for it, but oh. that, that was really what it was. Huh. So I said that, that's probably worse. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I just want to be careful about us not getting so mean. I just feel like everybody's just so waiting for you to make the slightest mistake. <laughs> Say the slightest thing. <laughs> like even what I just said, who was she talking about? And now, who's the feud with? And, <laughs> you know, that to me, it, it's turned us all fucking bad. We almost have become trolls, and I don't want to be a troll. I just, <laughs> I'm most nervous. What I, there's a wonderful person who is super talented, who I am friends with, who the interworld keeps trying to say we're in a fight and this and that. And I just said to her, don't read it because it's poison. It's poison and we all do it. So I'm trying to be super mindful as I get older to not be trading in the poisonous part of this because it is the one big problem. There are beautiful things about social media. It, it, it reaches for people and who have no access to things. It's a beautiful tool of access, and it's an absolute weapon of pointed destruction for human beings. 
teenagers in today's society with the amount of pressure on them through social media. I invented Instagram. I know you all think I'm lying. The truth <laughs> is, five years before Instagram, the iPhone came out. And I'm a photographer, and I started sharing pictures with friends of mine. I said, you know what? I'm going to start a blog spot. It's called iPhoneies. iPhone photographers oh sharing their God. vision. How did we not it's know each other still then? up on the internet. Oh. I-P-H-O-N-E-Y-S dot blogspot dot com. <laughs> I swear to you, wait. Where's listen. Michael Linton? Are you listening to this? I have 40 seconds. Listen to me. <laughs> And about 30 photographers started sharing their pictures. It's called iPhoneies. And then five years later, we heard about this thing called Instagram. And then we all went off of iPhoneies and went on Instagram. My point is this. Instagram is super fun for photographers. It's a beautiful thing. For teenagers, it's insane. It's so bad for them. So I'm conflicted about it all the time. How much are we participating in the destruction of human beings at the same time we're trying to participate in the expansion of human beings? It's a really troubled question for media today, 2022. Well, hopefully you'll come back 2023, 2025. We'll talk more about it and see where it has evolved and where it is. Uh, thank you for being thank here. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you all for coming.